A lot of athletes, they want to get fit so fast. They just want to feel really, really fit. But truthfully, it's better six weeks out to feel like you still have some room to improve and almost feel a little worried uh, rather than feel like you could, you could race tomorrow. Because if six weeks out, you feel like you could race tomorrow, then you miss time this thing. You know, because the whole point is to be putting that last piece of the puzzle in right at the end. You know, you, you want that complete um, that complete arsenal at the very end. And, and that's that's tough. But I think doing it that way physically um, adds to the mental piece, because, again, the, the athlete you want to you want the athlete to feel like they are chomping at the bit to race, not like they're hanging on by a thread and just want to get this race over with so they can take a break. And welcome to the Marathon Running Podcast. My name is Joe Sell, and my guest today is head coach and executive director of Northern Arizona Elite, Ben Rosario, who I just finished talking to. In case you're not familiar with Ben, he ran for Hanson's Brooks in the early 2000s, 403 miler, 218 marathoner. Since then, he's done a ton of coaching in different places. He's owned a running store in St. Louis before moving to Flagstaff and eventually forming what is now Northern Arizona Elite, where he's had a ton of success with his athletes there. It would take too long to mention everyone he's coached and is coaching and all the national titles and whatnot, but obviously last year, 2020, with the Olympic Trials Marathon, um, you have Alephine Tuimuk winning first place uh, on the women's side, going to Tokyo. Uh, Steph Bruce, sixth place. Kellen Taylor was eighth place on the men's side. Scott Fobble was 12th place. Um now, Scott and Ben also wrote a book together called Inside a Marathon, which is all about Scott's buildup for the 2018 New York City Marathon. And they wrote it in real time as he was training. So basically every chapter is a week of training. And it was written in the form of Scott's training log plus weekly recaps by both Ben and Scott separately. Uh, so Scott finished seventh in that race, um, the New York Marathon that year. And the second edition of the book, which came out later in 2019, um, has a chapter at the end about the 2019 Boston Marathon, where Scott also also finished seventh in a personal best time of 2.09.09. So a couple of things Ben wrote in the book really made me think as I read it a few months ago and it's what our conversation here revolves around and it has to do with approaching marathon training in a less scientific way or I should say what some would consider less scientific and going more off of your own experience and intuition and the fact that humans aren't machines and training isn't as simple as it might look on paper. Um, so that's kind of the basis for our conversation in here. And with that, I'll go ahead and play back the interview. So I told you I wanted to 
ask you about a couple things you wrote in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I could start with the one quote I mentioned in chapter one, where you're talking about you're sitting down summer 2018, you're writing Scott Fauble's schedule for New York City Marathon buildup, and you kind of give some background on Scott as an athlete, how you're really excited. He had a really good debut marathon a year earlier. And you say this, um, say, so obviously we have high hopes for this November. Still, I can't let myself go into what I call video game mode when writing his training. As tough as Scott is, he's still a human being. He's still a human being. He, he still has bones, muscles, tendons, and ligaments that will break down if given too much. So when I read that, I take video game mode to mean falling into the trap of just thinking mathematically more is always better. Like 100 miles a week is good, therefore 200 miles a week is twice as good, that kind of thing. But I'd just like to hear in your words you expand on what you mean by video game mode. Sure, it's partially that, but I think I think of it more as video game mode being coaches sitting down and just going crazy with the workouts and just trying to write the hardest things that they can come up with. Um, and I say video game mode, you know, because when you're playing a video game and you're, you have the controller in your hand and you're controlling this, uh, player in a, in a, in a sports video game or this, um, this character in a, in a, you know, fantasy video game, they can do whatever you want. You've got the controller in your hands, and, and it's it's unlimited what they can do. But those are video game characters. <laughs> These are human beings. And so when you're sitting down and writing a schedule, you can't let yourself get uh, carried away. You have to be grounded in reality. You have to be asking yourself, okay, wait a minute now. If I have him do this 12-by-mile session that we've never tried before, and it has some elements that are really aggressive and really risky. We're really pushing the envelope. That's fine. But then we can't come back three days later and do it all over again with another workout that we've never tried. That's the hardest workout I can come up with. I've got to realize that, hey, you know, if he does hit this 12 by mile, then the next session's got to be a little bit more bread and butter. We know we can hit it, that kind of thing. That's what I mean, mean by video game mode. Could it also, in your mind, mean um, falling into the trap? The or the, it seems to me that there's a there's a potential false sense of security out there in uh, relying too heavily on the numbers that are produced in a workout. Like I, we ran these splits in this workout, or whatever. Therefore, we should be able to hit X for a race day. So it seems like there's kind of a spectrum. You know, you hear people who are totally perceived effort-based. They don't even measure anything in workouts. It's all by feel. And then you have everybody, some people who measure everything and are super analytical about the numbers and um, constantly trying to predict what's going to happen on race day based on the workouts. So I guess where would you place yourself kind of on that continuum? And if you kind of 
can pull from both approaches, when do you think it's appropriate to use either either approach? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that I am probably in the middle of that spectrum. I certainly think that there's a place for really structured sessions with splits that we have to hit. Sometimes that's because you need to learn how to run pace and you need to get in touch with your sensory data via running really structured workouts. It's sort of interesting. Uh, but in order to be a runner that can run by, that can run really well in a race on perceived effort, you have to first really understand um, what each pace zone feels like. So you have to do a lot of really structured work and hit split after split and kind of, you know, begin to learn, okay, this is what I feel like when I'm running five minute pace. This is what I feel like when I'm running 450 pace so that you can then take that into, into a race where you don't have that sort of structure, particularly on the roads and, uh, and apply what you've learned in training in, in a less tangible way in the race. I certainly believe that there's also a place in training for fartlek work and, uh, work that is a little more, um, flowy and loose. So, Hey, let's run a fast finish long run. Let's run, um, 18 miles and then let's hit the next three really hard. Um, no speed limit, but each mile has to get faster than the one before things like that. Um, so I think there's, there's a place for, for both. I would, I would also say that I've probably, um, I've probably gotten more into perceived effort uh, being at altitude than maybe in my previous life at, at sea level because at altitude, your time doesn't – it's not the same pace you're running in the race anyway. So you you can't do those mathematical equations that you're referring to you know, when I coached people at sea level, of course, yeah, if, if, if we could go out and run 16 miles at, at, you know, 515 pace or whoever I might've been training, um, at the time, then we knew that we could probably, based on the context in which that workout took place, we, we knew that we could go out and run that pace for the marathon. Um, in the, at altitude, there's a little bit more of a leap of faith, even though I, I think I have a, a, a much better handle now on what, what paces equate to. It's still, it's still a little bit of an unknown. And, um, in that sense, you, you have to be a little bit more willing to, uh, go by perceived effort. Yeah. So the, the altitude is throwing a wrench in that. And also, I guess just individual to individual people are going to people's correlation between workouts and training and between workouts and race performances. Not everybody's going to have the same relationship between those two. I would imagine so then when you throw the altitude uh, complexity on top of that, how do you kind of manage? Because I would imagine a lot of your athletes are pretty pretty analytical people or at least like um, kind of proving themselves in training and having that security of like knowing their fit based on the times they've run in training. So how do you kind of tamp or, I guess, uh, temper that that expectation that you try to draw from training with your athletes, you know what I mean? Like, um, or do you, do you put a lot of stock in that with yours? Like, Hey, have, you know, you can believe that you're fit because you ran this time in training versus maybe on the other hand, sometimes it's like, Hey, you know what? Don't worry about these workouts. That's, 
race day is kind of a different it's a magical thing so don't worry about it so much you know what i mean yeah well i i think to to your point at the top there uh at the beginning of that where you talked about the athletes being different yeah i I think they are you know there's some athletes that you know always show up on on workout day and, and they're always they always seem to be at their best and they hit every single workout and 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 um then there are other athletes who are sometimes a little bit hot and cold. Sometimes they have a great session. Sometimes they don't. Um, and then, you know, of course, race day is another thing. You know, there's some athletes that, you know, they always seem to perform and get the most out of themselves on race day. Other athletes, um, you know, sometimes it, it, they're they're big game hunters, you know. <laughs> they perform on the biggest stage, but sometimes on the smaller stages, they, they struggle with, with motivation. Um, and, and, you know, it's, I mean, there's a million different, different combinations, right? Some of the athletes that hit every workout really, really well, um, also race well, but they don't necessarily seem to make a big jump on race day. You kind of really know what they've got from training. Uh, you pretty much know, Hey, this is how they're going to perform. Other, other athletes do seem to, to reach a new level on, on race day, um, competition, for whatever reason brings a little something out of them that, that training doesn't. So yeah, you begin to learn these things over time. Um, but I, I, I do believe it's important for all athletes, regardless of where they fall on that particular spectrum to, to gain confidence from training. Um, you don't want an athlete to, uh, begin to tell themselves, um, or spin the narrative in their mind that training doesn't matter and that I can always perform on race day no matter what happens in training. That's a dangerous situation because training does matter and it is important. And I, I uh, yeah, I, I would want to caution against letting letting that uh, sort of mindset creep into an athlete uh, into an athlete's headspace. So following up on gaining confidence from training, and you mentioned the example a few minutes ago about say a 16 miler at marathon effort or something like that. Are there certain types of work that give you as a coach more security or more comfort in your athletes abilities than other types of work? Like if they hit, are there certain kind of recurring workouts you fall back to, to say, Hey, these, when we do this, it's kind of like a, uh, this is like planting a flag. Like we know where we're at when we do this kind of across the board. Oh, for sure. In the marathon, you know, the marathon is, in my opinion, <laughs> the easiest uh, race to prepare for, uh, at least in, in terms of the races that I have to deal with, because, you know, it's mostly one zone, you know, that you're running in. So th- there aren't as many um, pieces to the puzzle, or, or I should say that the pieces are much more similar <laughs> as you put together the, the training puzzle for a marathon, whereas 10,000, 5,000 all these different things you have to be good at. But, um, you know, for the marathon, of course, we work on other things. But at the, at the end of the day, you just have to be able to run um, for a really long time at, at, a, at a high uh, high end aerobic effort. Uh, but but you're never, you know, you're, you're never dipping into that VO2 zone. You're not, you're not uh, you know, you're not touching paces that you have to touch at the end of a 10,000 meter race or things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if we can, we, I, I feel anyway, pretty dialed in on the last eight weeks or so of a marathon build and it's context, but if you're, if you're hitting, you know, 
we do like what we call a 10, 10, where it's 10 miles at, um, sort of a minute slower than marathon effort and, or so. And then 10 miles at marathon effort. If you hit that one, if you hit the 16 miler at marathon effort, if you run two by six miles at 10 seconds faster than marathon effort, uh, with a mile jog in between. Um, if you do those things, if you run 20 by a K at, at half marathon effort, um, you know, you hit all those things, uh, and, and maybe there's a few more. Uh, I feel very good about what you're going to do on race day in the marathon. So you said something there about the different zones that you usually don't hit, like the VO2, you know, you don't get super intense over the course of a marathon race. And, uh, this is something I've been asking other people is, you know, to what extent do speeds at shorter distances become a limiting factor in the marathon? Like if someone's you know, how much does it matter what your uh, lifetime capacity at a one mile race is or or because at some point I feel like those the, the shorter distances do matter, like, say, maybe down to half marathon or down to 10K. Like, um, so I guess what are your thoughts on periodization and going back and revisiting the shorter, faster stuff in order to supplement marathon training? Well, they matter, first of all, in the sense that, you know, just pure talent. <laughs> I mean, you know, if, if, if you didn't run, you know, I, I mean, if you're, if you're a male and you, you can't run at least under 410 in the mile, you're, you're not going to be a world-class marathoner. Uh, on the female side, if, if you can't run at least under 440, you're not going to be a world-class marathoner. You pr- and probably needs to be faster than that on, on both, on both those, uh, or in both those examples. But in terms of, um, so, so it matters in that sense because because you you begin as you as you uh, venture into the longer distances to to understand uh, at least it's a starting point you know it's a starting point um, and I guess I'm also saying because uh, you mentioned limiting factor I mean there's a certain limiting factor if you don't have a certain amount of talent you're only going to run so fast in the marathon even though you can get better and better and better because um, I see that a lot it's kind of a bummer actually because some people get really excited, especially if they started running later in life and they don't have that, um, reference point, you know, they start off and they run their first marathon in four and a half hours, you know, cause they just did it to start losing weight or something. And then, then they, then they train really hard and they run 355 and then, then they train harder still and they run 330 and they think, oh man, you know, I'm just gonna keep knocking a half hour off. I'll be at 220 in no time. But it's, I mean, at some point there's, you know, a limiting factor. Anyway, I don't think that's exactly what you're asking. Uh, what you're asking maybe more so is, um, is the importance of working on those things over the course of time. If you are a quote unquote marathoner. Yeah, I think it's uh, major, uh, really important no matter what level you're at, because I think what happens over time, if you fall in love with the marathon and you just do marathon training all the time and marathon segment after marathon segment, and you keep hitting that sort of zone, that sort of half marathon to marathon pace zone, um, you you lose some of the power in your stride. You lose some of the uh, flexibility and range of motion, and um, eventually that's going to make you slower in the marathon. Uh, not only will it make you slower if you tried to do a shorter distance race, but you know, in the marathon, you're still trying to get as much power out of each step as you possibly can over the course of 26.2 miles. And so um, you need to have the most efficient, most powerful um, 
form that you can possibly have. Um, you know, I think that's why Meb Kaflesky, for example, was able to have such a great career in the marathon, even to, into his late 30s, because he worked diligently on his form and efficiency via strides and form drills, not necessarily crazy speed workouts, but just enough to keep that form impeccable. And if you watch him at the 2013 Boston Marathon, 14 Boston Marathon, excuse me, where he wins, his form looked as good as it ever did in his whole career. Now, do you think he could have gone out and run a 27-11, 10,000 meter? No. I almost guarantee you that would not have been possible. Now, he that's his PB. He did that a decade earlier. Um, but he, he continued to touch uh, the type of work necessary to keep his form. Um, so that's what I would say is you got to do it because you got to, you got to stay powerful and you got to stay efficient. And, um, um, you know, you can do that in a variety of ways, but I think to your point, uh, going and getting away from the marathon for a segment and, and working on your 5,000 and 10,000 meter paces, um, that's the easiest way to do it. You know, putting it that way, it almost seems like for, for someone who's, focusing on the marathon the shorter stuff almost seems to fit in the same category as like weight training or or plyos or something it's more of like a mechanical advantage more so than like the fitness aspect i agree with that yeah yeah. i've never heard it necessarily put that way but i i i think so yeah i think so because um it's You've you've decided at this point uh, that you want to be a marathoner. So you everything you do then is is kind of focused um, on uh, being the best marathoner you can be. And yes, of course, you're lifting weights and you're doing all this ancillary work. And yeah, you may not love twenty by three hundred at five k pace. It may not be your favorite type of workout, but it's a means to an end. Because if you don't do that type of work ever, um, you are gonna. <laughs> it's just inevitable that you're you're going to. Um, veg out a little bit and you're not going to have that pop that you once did and you need you need that pop yeah so i want to go back to something else you said in the book later towards the end um and again just for context here for listeners we're talking about the 2018 uh, new york marathon build-up uh where ben is training scott fauble and um so anyways in, in that context you say this um say so here's the thing i don't coach off a template i don't use a book and i certainly don't coach based on anything i see on social media i coach with my gut and with firsthand anecdotal evidence from 25 years of experience in the sport so i read that i read this book a few months ago and um, i gotta be honest when i first read that i was a little disappointed because i was like man i thought i was gonna get like the magic secret workouts here that nobody knows about. Um, but that makes it sound like it's just boring, hard work. Like that's not what I was after. But then in the meantime, I'm training for a marathon and that is like, I'm reading that again. I, I appreciate it much more. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, this whole kind of like anecdotal versus scientific, uh, the more I think about it, they seem kind of like the same thing. Because, like, if you think about what you're doing with your athletes is basically informal science, you know. And science experiments are basically just really formal anecdotes. So I'm not bothered by that. And plus, I think experience is really everything um, with this kind of stuff. So my question, it's a long wind-up, but what I want to ask you is, you know, you talked about your 25 years experience being what guides you. 
did your time with the Hansons kind of form your foundation and you've just built off of that? Or um, how has your experience evolved the way you train marathoners now? Yeah, like what you said there. I mean, anecdotal evidence is evidence nonetheless, right? Um, yeah, I like to say our lab is is, is Lake Mary Road, you know? Um, right. Yeah, I mean, the Hansons, of course, uh, that's, that's uh, probably – the best way to put it. That's the foundation uh, because I learned a ton from Keith and Kevin Hansen and I really liked how we trained. Um, I can't say that I know exactly how they train now. I mean, that was 20 years ago <laughs> uh, or almost 20 years ago now. So uh, I'm sure they do some things different as well. You know, we all evolve, but um, no, I, I think I learned some foundational principles, uh, some of which I alluded to earlier, which are that, look, if you're trying to run 26 miles as fast as you can, uh, there's just certain things you have to do. You have to spend a lot of time uh, in that zone or around that zone, around that pace um, for workouts that include a lot of volume, <laughs> three by three miles, two by six miles, 16 miles, steady state, whatever. Those things have to be in your training. I mean, there's just you, you can't expect to run a, a good marathon otherwise. Uh, now, of course, over the years, you learn all, all sorts of things from all sorts of people. Um uh, you know, and like I said, I, I put the most stock in in the things I've seen uh, firsthand, whether I've experienced them myself, whether I've watched people that I've coached experience them, uh, people I enjoy following, you know, that, that you know, articles uh, that are based on, um, uh, you know, experiential articles, essentially. So things that actually happened rather than, rather than, um, you know, what, what I mean by sciencey stuff is, you know, um, uh, things that again are done in a lab. So, you know, percentage of this percentage of that, this run needs to be done at this percentage of your VO2 max or this percentage of your lactate threshold. Um, I think there's uh, a place for science for sure. Uh, but like you say, I mean, uh, this is science too, you know, we're, we're, we're forming, um, a hypothesis about different things. And then we're, we're writing a schedule and we're, we're testing out that hypothesis, you know, and, it, and over time, of course, um, I think you get answers to those questions that you're asking and, and sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong, but you, you begin to formulate, uh, what I guess eventually becomes your own philosophy, you know? And so mine, Sure, uh, the Hansons are a big part of the foundation, but then, you know, I learned from Greg McMillan, uh, who I worked with for a while. I, I learned from, um, from, you know, following Ryan Hall, followed him closely, of course, in his heyday, who didn't. Um, Terrence Mahan was his coach, who I think is a fantastic coach, so learned a lot from them and what they did and how they succeeded, um, you know, and, and then I, I learned from non-marathon coaches too. I love Mark Wetmore at Colorado and, um, you know, read a lot, read a lot about his team. Of course, I've been running with the Buffaloes and I just, it's just weird. It's just, it's just, it's hard to explain, but just over time you gather these little nuggets of knowledge, these little things here and there, and, and you can't just put them all into your training but you put it, you, you critically analyze them and you put in something here, something there. And, 
and um, you know, something like I said, some things work and some things don't. And the things that work, you move forward with, and the things that didn't work, you throw them in the garbage. And uh, you know, at least you tried. Have you changed your mind about anything significant over the years? I mean, it's it's such a gradual process. So significant is is a big word there, but uh, but certainly, I do think that. Uh, over the last couple of years, I've um, come to believe that down the stretch in marathon training, the mileage is less important, um, and you really, I, I, I think, again, I don't know how they do things now, but 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 certainly in in, in uh, the way we trained back then in Michigan with the Hansons was that you know all these big big sessions should be done with a lot of cumulative fatigue in your legs. Um, which I definitely bought into and I think certainly works. But I think I like to have that block, which I call more condensed training. Um, I like to have that more 10 to 7 weeks out or so. And then the the final stretch run, I actually like to pull the mileage back a little bit. The midweek workouts become a little easier, a little less volume. And then I like to be ready to go on the weekends for the big sessions. Um, that's actually something I learned from a Japanese coach named Katsuhika Hanada. So he came into Flagstaff and he and I had a couple of different uh, uh, meetings and we went over our training together. And he was the one that kind of pointed at my training and said, make that easier, make that easier. Uh, meaning, Hey, I want the guys to be ready for, for this. Um, and, um, that was that was pretty pretty valuable insight, and I really appreciated him being willing to share his thoughts with me, and and that has worked for us really well uh, lately. And so, in that context, the down the stretch bigger sessions on the weekend would those be relatively bigger sessions than the bigger sessions earlier on in the condensed period? Yeah, correct, exactly right. So, in the condensed period, the midweek workout and the weekend workout are kind of equal in difficulty, sort of. I guess it would be one way to think of it. And the mileage is is pretty high and and you're okay if they feel kind of flat and you're okay if they have to grind through some sessions because you have, there's periods in the marathon that you got to grind through and that's a part of it. Um, But then down the stretch, you know, what, what, you know, what maybe in the previous block might've been three by three miles or or something like that, nine or 10 miles, maybe even 12 miles of volume in the midweek workout. Um, you know, 20 by a K maybe 12.4 miles of, of work, uh, midweek, um, down the stretch, all of a sudden it's like 20 by 300 smooth with 200 jog. And then all of a sudden, then the weekend workout, you feel like a million bucks and you can hit it so much harder. And, um, so, and, and that really is, and this was coach Anata's point was, well, if you're really getting them ready for the marathon, they're good. That's what they're supposed to feel like on marathon day. They're supposed to feel pretty fresh and ready to go. And so, um, don't be afraid to let them feel a little bit fresher, um, on some of those big, big workouts down the stretch. And, uh, yeah, like I said, it's just worked beautifully. Yeah. Um, so back to this idea of, of like video game mode and, um, you know, they're human beings and it's, there's nuance there. You can't just say like, you know, like you were saying, you, you don't have controls to a video game. You know, it's not like they do exactly what you think they're going to do on paper. Um, and especially at the level you guys are at where you're talking about, you know, people are doing this for a living, trying to make Olympic teams, and that kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot at stake here. So 
like in your world, performance is a much heavier game than like the recreational or the you know there's somebody like me trying to qualify for Boston or something like that. I mean, there's so much on the line, and I would imagine that the mental game plays a huge role. So like when you're looking at imagine like a pie chart of like things that affect your race performance. And obviously the training is like, I would imagine number one, the biggest piece of that pie, but how much weight do you put on like an athlete's mental state or whatever you want to call it? Like their, uh, their emotional state or, um, so how much, how much emphasis do you put on that as a coach? And also how much responsibility do you feel for that as a coach? It's huge, huge. It's, I mean, you know, what's the Yogi Berra funny quote where he says uh, baseball is 90%, 90% uh, physical and the other half is mental or something? Anyway, uh, it's just a little Yogi Berra-ism. Uh, no, I mean, it's, a, it's enormously important for the athlete to believe in what he or she is doing, to uh, be confident in the training, to be confident in themselves, be confident in their coach. It, it all It all works together. It's sort of – you got to get the snowball rolling in, in the right direction, but everything is a part of that, right? It's think of a snowball, right? It's picking up all the snow as it goes down the mountain, and and all these little things uh, add to the to the momentum, and every every grain of snow adds to the momentum, and so um, I I think it's super super vital. Um, that's why it's so important to, in, in my opinion, to build a schedule, uh, a training schedule that, that gradually progresses uh, over, over the course of the segment because you want them feeling more and more and more fit uh, as they go. And that takes a little bit of patience. Uh, a lot of athletes, they want to get fit so fast. They just want to feel really, really fit. But truthfully, it's better six weeks out to feel like you still have some room to improve and almost feel a little worried uh, rather than feel like you could, you could race tomorrow. Because if six weeks out, you feel like you could race tomorrow then you miss time this thing, you know, because the whole point is to be putting that last piece of the puzzle in right at the end. You know, you, you want that complete, um, that complete arsenal at the very end. And, and that's, that's tough, but I think doing it that way physically, um, adds to the mental piece because again the the athlete you want to you want the athlete to feel like they are chomping at the bit to race not like they're hanging on by a thread and just want to get this race over with so they can take a break and you hear that a lot with marathoners so that's a that's a challenge and that's part of the mental game and of course there's all sorts of nuanced things that are part of the mental game along the way and dealing with failures dealing with setbacks dealing with a bad workout and how the coach athlete uh, relationship um, you know what sort of communication you have and you know all, all those things come into play but just from a general perspective you you want them feeling that they're most confident on race day not six weeks out so that what you said right there chomping at the bit versus hanging on by a thread that seems like a very fine line to walk with high-level marathoners because it seems to me like training for a marathon is all about being able to tolerate fatigue, probably more so than shorter distances because, I mean, that's a little, it's just so much time on your feet at that high-end aerobic zone. So how do you manage the balance between 
or how do you how do you strike the right amount of fatigue to where you're you're inducing enough fatigue to get the adaptation but not so much that they're going to get in a hole of fatigue you know what i mean or is it at this level do they pretty much know their own bodies well enough that you can trust them to say like hey i'm too tired or or how do you manage that Yes, yeah, so, somewhat. It's somewhat communication on their part, for sure. You know, they have to be honest. Um, I am fortunate currently in the sense that I just, with Scott, with Kellen, Alphine, Steph, I just know them so well. So I don't, I can't recall being terribly worried. Scott Smith, you know, I can't, I can't recall being terribly worried about that recently. I feel like I've got a pretty good sense of, for each of them of, of what they can handle from a volume or density standpoint. Um, you know, for a younger athlete moving into the marathon, like a Rory Linkletter or some of the folks that haven't done one yet that are going to, um, you know, I, I, I think I probably err on the side of caution with the mileage. Um, I don't actually think the mileage overall, I think it's probably overrated, really. Um, you know, I know in the past athletes have, at the high, at a high level have tried to get to 130 miles a week, and uh, and that can work for some, but uh, if you want to have a long career, you know, I, I think I think it's actually better to run a little bit less and, and, um, and hit the workouts a little bit harder, and um, that's, just, that's just what I've seen anecdotally over, over the last few years. Yeah, something I heard Frank Shorter say was uh, like the the harder and the longer his workouts were, the more running he had to do in between to get recovered. Like the more flushing oh, yeah. running it took to get. So I guess to your point, like it seems like the mileage would probably take care of itself at that. If you're doing the workouts you need to do, and then the recovery, easy running in between, you gotta do to recover. The mileage probably is just a byproduct of that. At that Joe, point. it's right on, spot on, spot on. When I write the schedule, I write the big workouts in, and then I write the amount of re- the, the the runs in between are written with the idea of okay, what's going to be the right distance to recover here, mm-hmm. and then I just look at what the total is. I, I don't, right. you know, that's the order in which that I, in which I write it. Whereas I think some coaches or athletes want to write a hundred down. And then get to a hundred, like write it so that they can get to a hundred. I write it day by day, thinking about how people are going to react to each workout and what they need in between, et cetera. And then I just look at what it happens to be. Now, occasionally, if I look at it and it's a little higher than I thought, I'll think, Ooh, something's wrong here. Maybe, maybe I need to relook at this and make it less or the opposite. Sometimes I look at it and say, that doesn't seem like quite enough. Maybe I, maybe I need a couple more here, a couple more there, but uh, it's usually pretty close and on we go. Let's take hypothetically. Say you were taking like a uh, a mile or five k guy into your marathon stable, and say historically they've never really hit more than like seventy five, eighty miles a week, and you know that well, just because of the type of work we're doing, we're going to be in the hundred range probably. Like, would you think they would need in that case to just spend a certain amount of time at the higher volume? not necessarily training specifically, just getting used to just the volume first, or you think they could kind of jump right in? I mean, I think that in that scenario, I would be, I would be 
apt to take the mileage off of their easy runs if necessary and and still get the volume that everybody else is doing on the big sessions. I think that's what they really need. You know, gun to your head, you would admit, I think that a coach would admit that those are the most important days. You know, I think the cliche thing to say is that every day is just as important as the next, but come on now, you know, you're going to make your biggest gains on the big workouts. And so um, I want to make sure that an athlete like that is ready to go. So if they run 90 miles a week, um, I still think they can run a heck of a marathon. I'll, I'll give you an example of the tangibly. Uh, Kellen Taylor, you know, when she came out of college, she was a miler. She'd finished third at the NCAAs in, in the indoor mile. Um, she actually had a, had a had her child right out of college and so didn't start training until, you know, postpartum. And, and uh, you know, so she really wasn't running that much mileage. She was running 5,000s, 10,000s, started dabbling in some halves. And, and when I started coaching her in 2012, I could – definitely tell that she was going to be a great marathoner. Um, but you know, didn't want to do it right away. Uh, we kind of, uh, kept, kept doing what she was doing and just slowly building. And by the time we got to the winter of, um, 2015, when she was going to debut at Houston, you know, we, we, it was really just a gradual progression from what we had already been doing. And she actually ran her first ever 100 mile week in that segment. And she only did one of them. So she only ran 100 miles in, in a week one time before that Houston Marathon, and she debuted in 228. And so uh, to me, it wasn't about the mileage. It was just about some of the workouts being more specific, longer, uh, et cetera. Uh, and, 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 of course, since then, she's continued to you know, gradually progress, and I think we found more of a sweet spot now around like 115 for her. Uh, but but it, it, I would say to that even each segment has been different. You know, there the, I remember a segment where she was up around 120 quite a bit, but then I think I remember segments where she's also been more like 105 to 110. Uh, it just depends on the race and what she's coming off of. And, you know, I, I, the bottom line is I, I think that's uh, the least of my worries. Yeah. Cool. We'll um, start wrapping up here. Um, just looking ahead to the rest of this year, is there anything that uh, you're allowed to uh, publicly say that you guys are shooting for at this point? I mean, obviously you got the Olympics, I know, but uh, any of your other athletes got any majors they're uh, planning on this year? Yeah, I assume you're looking to the fall. Uh, you know, uh, you know. Right now, we're very focused on the on the track and the, and the track trials. But this is a marathon podcast, so I will I will uh, jump ahead then for for the sake of um, your line of questioning. I think that you'll certainly see us uh, have a heavy fall marathon season. Um, you know, probably one, two, three. Probably maybe seven or eight of our athletes will be running a marathon this fall, at least. Um, and not all doing the same one. Of course, we'll spread out uh, and run some different places, but I'm very excited about the fall. I'm excited for everybody, not just us. I'm excited that mm-hmm. there's going to be 20,000 people in Boston. I'm excited that there's going to be however many thousand people in New York and Chicago. And I, I just um, – I'm just thrilled that road racing is going to be back in a big way. And I, I think people are going to, uh, people are going to be ready to roll. Uh, I, I can't wait. Yeah. Well, man, thanks a lot for uh, being open to chatting with me. Um, thanks for taking the time and, uh, you know, going back to what you were saying about, um, kind of cultivating like the confidence and the, uh, the mindset, like through training, something I really appreciate about your group and your program is, 
the transparency and like the you know the publicity and being out there kind of for the sport and for the fans so we really appreciate that because it's funny how <laughs> we're talking about like the mindset thing and like affecting your training and it's so funny how you'll see like some coaches it's like they've got like this secret notebook of all the training and it's like nobody can ever see it because then the secret would be out and everybody would do the training and get better than them or something but it's like if that were the case then like the coach doesn't seem like a really important piece of the puzzle there because if it's just the the training program then what are you there for you could just anybody could pick up the paper and do it so it's like obviously there's like you're saying the puzzle is has many pieces and there's many interlocking complicated parts so anyways it's just the point is i appreciate you guys being open and uh just happy to talk to people about this stuff. Joe, I really appreciate that. Spot on again, spot on again. The coaching has a lot more to do with the the relationship and the the guidance than 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 writing the workouts, I think. Uh so I'll I'll, I'll I know you're going to let me go, but I uh I was interested because I caught this as you were talking. So your first marathon is coming up and you're trying for ball, trying to get a BQ? No, well, I no, am you're, training- that was a hypothetical. Training um sorry. So uh, I said qualifying for Boston, somebody like me. I'm not actually trying to qualify for Boston. I'm going to run grandma's in June. Okay. Um, but I guess that's like my ability level is like somebody who would be in that, like trying to get under three hour kind of that. Uh, I was classifying, classifying myself as a recreational runner as opposed to a gotcha. runner. That's what gotcha. I was doing. But I am training for grandma's. and So I ran in college. I uh, was mostly better at the shorter stuff, but I'm trying to uh, – see what the marathon is all about and i'm gonna so yeah i'm doing grandma's in june you're gonna love grandma's grandma's is awesome that's one of my favorites oh yeah everybody speaks super highly of it and the course looks very gentle and forgiving so yeah it's it's awesome you'll you'll love it. it duluth is super cool so i wish you the very best of luck yeah i appreciate it so we'll get and sign off there. Anyways, again, this was Ben Rosario, in case I forget to uh, say in the intro. Thanks a lot, man. Uh, thanks, Joe.